Special criminalist, as always. Hi there, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here, if you're new to the format, is I have a script in front of me. Kevin has written this one, and it's called John Edward Robinson's The Internet's First Serial Killer. We're going to explore it together. I have no idea who John Edward Robinson is. I mean, he's the internet's first serial killer, isn't he? But you know as much as I do, dear listener or watcher, if you're on YouTube. Hello. Uh, Leave a like. Leave a review if you're listening as a podcast. I mean, after you've enjoyed the show. Or if you've been listening for a while, you might be like, hmm, now's the perfect time. Well, I mean, just, just keep watching. That's fine. Let's go. Once you start watching this video or listening to this podcast, you must finish it. For every friend you forward this episode to, Bill Gates will donate $5 to the Unicorns for Orphans Relief Fund. If you don't forward this, at least 15 of your friends will die before the day is over. Your mother will die, and your crush will never speak to you again. Consider yourself warned. Oh my god, this is like so 90s. Do you remember those chain emails that would go around? And people would genuinely forward that shit. It's like, yo, you don't understand that like five of your friends are not going to die by the end of the day. You know how unlikely that is. And it's like, Simon, well, we all go home on the same bus, don't we? What if the bus crashes? And like, well, it's still got nothing to do with a bloody email, does it? But people are idiots. If you had the internet in the 1990s, this should sound all too familiar to you. Our inboxes, chat rooms, and IMs were filled with chain letters ranging from the innocently cute to the downright threatening. Yeah, and none of these things had any other goal. It's not like they were trying to extract some Bitcoin from you. And one of the most fascinating things to do is if you're ever in your spam folder and you get one of those things that it's like, you know, I've been spying on you through your webcam. You gotta send me a bitcoin or i'm gonna like reveal this all to the internet oh no they'll they'll mail it to all your contacts or something and obviously don't fall for that shit. uh but you can look up a bitcoin address right so you know they're like sent to this bitcoin wallet you can look up that bitcoin wallet you could just google it or not google it but plug it into one of these bitcoin wallet explorers and it will tell you how many people have been sending money to it and how much money that wallet has collected and you can bet that's one of many wallets that these scammers are using and you can see it and it's like it's full of thousands of dollars of people who have just been suckered in by this email scam and i'm like that's depressing and someone is just getting mad rich doing this it's crazy but back in the day it was just like yeah yeah i just want to see if people will forward it around just for their notoriety (laughs) okay maybe bloody mary was going to come to your house and kill you if you didn't forward the email maybe your crush would talk to you the next day if you did they were all full of empty promises or empty threats because ghosts and magic aren't real as we well know so of course breaking a chain letter isn't going to have any effect on your life still there are a lot of superstitious people in the world and there were more than enough of them to keep this nonsense going admittedly i'd sometimes pass them on if they were particularly funny but even as a stupid teenager i didn't believe in any of this stuff well as a teenager i also didn't but as a teenager there was also that like niggle in the back of your mind where it's like what if i don't know what if it is real and it's just something i haven't learned yet and i'm like you know 99 percent of my brain is like push that stupid part of your brain away whistle boy um but there's also like like uh, uh, and it's also like you know things and superstitions and i don't know i have that um like ocd thing where it's like i'll check things like more times than necessary like i'll be leaving the office and i'll be like did it lock that door is the door locked is that door locked it's locked is it locked is it locked yeah it's locked it's locked right it's locked yeah 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 why do i do this i don't know because my brain's broken but whatever but it's like that thing i also like but i'm also super rational so it doesn't make sense but then also there are like you know they're like touching wood and stuff and it's like oh yeah no why you know something terrible hasn't happened and then i'll be like touch wood and it's like why am i doing this simon you don't believe in any of this nonsense but still find myself doing it I think it's that like weird OCD thing rather than me actually believing that any of this stuff is actually real. But then isn't all of that just some sort of weird brain issue? Fascinating aside, Simon, we're like a paragraph in. Can you please get on with it? By the time 1999 rolled around, these chain letters had been going around for years, long enough for us to develop the word spam to describe them. This also meant that they had been around long enough for everyone to ignore them. So, if you were hanging out in the Star Trek Deep Space Nine chat room on AOL, it would be easy to ignore the following message if a guy by the name of slave master contacts you do not answer he has killed 56 women that he has talked to on the internet please send out to all the women on your buddy list ask them to pass this on he has been on aol yahoo and x site so far this is no joke and please send this to men too just in case send to everyone you know this is not real though right 
like slave master is really the name you choose and also you can change your username or just set up a new account this is just the stupid forwarding thing but the fact that this is actually someone called john edward robinson and this is a casual criminalist and not a decoding the unknown which is another podcast i do which deals with like mysteries where this would definitely fall into the fact of none of this is real uh i'm slightly alarmed given the length of this script and all of that that i just said that slave master is actually a serial killer which is intense and scary let's see if i'm right what do you think i've cleaned up the spelling and formatting a bit for simon's sake oh my god thank you kevin that makes such a like anytime i'm reading like oldie english or like stuff written by stupid people on the internet or just like oh the worst is where it's like stupid people saying things in court and they can't construct a sentence properly and the court reporter must be like oh my god what and then i'm reading it and i'm like oh my god what uh but so i appreciate it being cleaned up thank you uh, late 90s internet writing was atrocious internet writing today is still atrocious but even in its most legible form this sounds like absolute bullshit. sure they're not prophesizing mystical powers like bloody mary but this chain message is aware of the presence and identity of a mass murderer yet somehow he hasn't been arrested i mean there's plenty of mass murderers who haven't been arrested <laughs> there are more than you think which is the scariest thing like all of those famous serial killers they've all the one they're they're just the ones who have got caught consider all the missing people who haven't been attributed to those serial killers or not just missing people but murders that haven't been solved oh my god there are way more serial killers out there than you can imagine which is terrifying so i hope you know oh my god (laughs) there's no comfort to that is there there's more serial killers than you think lock your doors it makes as little sense as any other spam and it was easily ignored i honestly don't know if i ever encountered this message personally or not it's not as memorable as being hit with a sexy bus or seven-year-old timmy who had no eyes and whose face was covered in blood i don't know these ones either i do know like the example he, he, uh, kevin gave in the intro though like about you know 15 of your friends blah 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 Uh, that is super familiar but i don't know who timmy is and i don't know what the sexy bus is if i did see this message however i can guarantee you i was already far too bitter and jaded from years on the internet to ever forward it if you were on the internet in those days there's a very strong chance you saw a chain letter and ignored it just like i read i had but enough introduction it's time to sit back relax and feel the crushing weight of guilt on your chest as you realize that by forwarding that message you might actually have saved a woman's life the story was true slave master was real and he was still actively killing when that message circulated this is the story of the internet's first serial killer holy how have i never heard of this this is insane like i love internet i love internet stories and i do a true crime show have i not heard of this one this is wild like the other one's just like yeah you know that guy you know that guy you know that story this one's like have i never heard of the slave master killings by the way the internet's first serial killer is a fine title i feel like john edward robinson the slave master killings is uh possibly better although i feel like slave master in the title is probably going to get me demonetized and it will join the rest of the casual criminalist episodes which are <laughs> let's just say this show is really long and it doesn't do quite as well when it comes to advertising as some of the other shows <laughs> mostly because of things like murder and torture and rape and the slave master killings the early years john edward robinson was born on december the 27th 1943 in cicero illinois the once headquarters of al capone his childhood was a bit of a mixed bag this is the casual criminalist so you best believe he had an alcoholic father and an overbearing overbearing disciplinarian mother and he was the middle child of four siblings he is you dizzy <laughs> it's the serial killer melting pot right here still he was not without his accomplishments he joined the boy scouts of america in 1955 and by november of 1957 had achieved the rank of eagle scout this is a pretty remarkable feat as there are time requirements that you must spend at certain ranks with a mandatory 16 months of waiting and an immense amount of work needed john would have had to be extremely dedicated to have earned his eagle scout in pretty much the bare minimum time possible it was a remarkable enough achievement that he was said to be an elite future leader probably the last thing he needed to hear given his delusions of grandeur he was cited as being overly pompous after the ceremony which does beg the question what the appropriate level of pompousness would have been well less <laughs> if they say you're overly pompous how about being slightly less pompous or just not pompous at all because it's an unattractive personality trait also why do you have to sp- why do you have to spend a certain amount of time at each rank that doesn't seem very meritocratic 
It's like, yo, if you're ready to advance in an organization, they're like, well, you've got to spend two years as junior about it. It sounds like something straight out of the office. You're not ready to be promoted, even though you're far more competent than everyone else here, because you've only been junior manager for six years and we need seven years of service. Oh my God, there was another thing I was reading about. Um, people mocked me in a previous episode of Casual Criminalist because I, I only recently realized that Prince Andrew, the uh, Jeffrey Epstein's friend dude, allegedly whatever, uh, was the Queen's son. I was like, he's like one of those royals that you... I, I thought he was just a royal you don't really know about. You know, like Princess Charlotte. It's like, okay, I'm sure she's royal. She's probably like someone's second cousin or whatever. But no, I discovered that Prince Andrew was the Queen's son. And then I was also reading like... So he was in the military, right? But he also gets promoted still. Like, he hasn't been in the military for ages. And every few years, they promote him. So he's now, like, rear admiral or some shit like that. And then every four years, even though he's not really in the Navy anymore, they or four years or two years or whatever, they give him, like, another promotion. Even though he hasn't done anything. So it'd be, like, vice admiral or admiral or whatever. And he was like, well, because of the accusations, I'm not going to be uh, taking my promotion this year. And I'm like, well, who gives a shit? Why would... How... This doesn't matter. If you're not earning it, why why would you want it? I don't understand. Like, if you are an admiral in the Navy, it's like, holy shit, you're an admiral in the Navy. Respect. Like, you climbed up the ranks and became, like, a leader among men. Great. In that career path, that's something people aspire to. But if you're just getting promoted every two years for just dicking around, whatever Prince Andrew was up to, um, how is that something you care about? It would be like getting a YouTube play. It would be like buying one of those YouTube play buttons that you get when you get 100,000 subscribers or a million subscribers off eBay and being like, look what I got. It's pointless. It's totally pointless. Sorry, this is enough of a tangent. Let's just get back to it. Later that month, he got to travel to London as an Eagle Scout to sing for Queen Elizabeth II. Backstage, he received a kiss from Judy Garland, presumably on the cheek since he was 13 and she was 33. He also spoke with actress Gracie Fields about his plans to study for the priesthood. Less than ideal parents or not, he seemed to have been having a pretty successful childhood. Is this embellishment or is this true? Because sometimes with these things, uh, we'll often go down the path and it'll be like, yeah, a lot of this is just testimony from like their own court proceedings and stuff where i guess it's perjury if you like embellish your past but also you're on trial for however many murders so uh, you probably you probably don't really care about the extra perjury charge <laughs> it's like no 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 i got a kiss from judy garland well we're adding a year onto your sentence for perjury and also totally not provable whether it's a lie or not so i don't know is this true uh, let's take it as fact so far okay in early fall of that same year john robinson had been accepted to the quigley proprietary seminar seminary a five-year program for young men who intended to join the priesthood it takes five years to be a priest what the f are you learning it's not like you're becoming a surgeon it's not like people's lives are in your hands you're a priest i'm pretty sure like things i could fake being a priest things i couldn't fake being a surgeon <laughs> all right dr whistler we're uh moving in uh, here's your scalp i'll be like guys i got something to tell you whereas if they're like ah good morning father whistler your pulpit awaits you i'll be like okie dokie no worries <laughs> At age 17, he enrolled at the Morton Junior College in Cicero to become a medical radiographer. Once again, it did not go well. He dropped out after two years, but this time he had a plan. Bake it till you make it. The following year, in 1964, he moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and got a job at Children's Mercy and General Hospital using fake credentials. Wow. My made-up story about pretending to be a surgeon is not that far off today's episode. He claimed he needed a night job while he was in medical school to become a doctor, something that was not true and was never going to happen. Queen Elizabeth may give knighthoods to talented singers and universities may even give them honorary PhDs, but no one is giving out honorary MDs. And John was not capable of earning one on his own. Also, he's an American, so he can't... Oh, you can be knighted. Americans can be knighted, but they can't use the honorific sir which I always thought was a bit weird. I guess it's because other countries don't have like titles like that, right? That's just a weird... I mean, some do, but it's mostly just a weird British thing that stuck around from the past. He was quickly fired from his job when it was realized that he had no idea what the f*** he was doing. That same year, he married Nancy Jo Lynch, although it's unclear whether they met before or after he moved to Missouri. They had the first child the following year, so it may have been a shotgun wedding. Now, Simon, I'm going to save you a little bit of time this episode. Thank you, Kevin. Normally, you spend about 20 minutes each episode trying to figure out whether the killer's home has the death penalty or not. Oh, I love it. <laughs> okay, let's find out early on. 
Guys, although I love it, everyone hates it. People are like, Simon, enough speculating on the death penalty. You do it bloody every episode, and then you say you're not going to, and then you still do. I'm sorry. Kansas City is a good Midwestern town with Midwestern values located northwest of Missouri. I don't know much about America, but I feel that the Midwest is this is a place that is going to be they're going to be into that death penalty right this ain't like this isn't some super progressive part of america but missouri is really two states in one there's missouri and then there's missouri and missouri is the deep south wait there's two states is missouri a state i've never heard of that you best believe that the state with 17 counties that makes up an area known as little dixie has the death penalty yeah anywhere called little dixie you're gonna be like they're just gonna be what did you do shoplift chair mate <laughs> yeehaw little dixie you're gonna have to wait till the end to find out what happens i just wanted you to know the death is in fact on the table so you know what to root for oh shit. slave masters get in the needle or i mean maybe firing squad which i found out last episode is still a thing in some u.s states and once again yeehaw <laughs> life of crime After his first attempt at fraud failed, John was hired by Dr. Wallace Graham as an X-ray technician in Fountain, at Fountain Plaza X-ray Laboratory. While Nancy gave her the first child, John Jr. was out at bars, chatting women up. He was known to be unfaithful and had many girlfriends. He was also stealing from Graham. Within six months of being hired, he completely drained the practice's bank account of $33,000. Um, what are you up to? What did they hire him as? Why does the X-ray technician at your practice at your laboratory sorry have access to your practice's bank account and the ability to withdraw thirty-three thousand dollars. the idea that someone comes to work for me and then i'll give them access to my bank account within a few months and then not keep an eye on things or at least my accountant would be like where's this where, where did the money go i'd be like very good question <laughs> like immediately it would take about a month the office was not just John's personal bank account, but he also but also his personal meat market, and he engaged in debaucherous activities with patients and staff alike. For reasons unknown, he bragged Dr. Graham's 15-year-old son about these encounters. I don't know why he couldn't have saved it for the bar, but then again, he had wanted to become a priest. Oh, dude, no. <laughs> Holy Somehow, John managed to hold that job down for roughly two years. Perhaps he finally figured out what he was doing, or maybe the sex was so good that his co-workers did his share of the work as well. Who can say? But in 1969, he was arrested and charged with embezzlement. He was convicted of theft for what would be $250,000 in today's money. And sentenced to... Wait for it, and I just want to comment. That is an ins... How? Again, he's an x-ray technician. How is he good? <laughs> A quarter of a million dollars in two years. I uh, was sentenced to a suspended sentence with three years probation. So he didn't go to jail for stealing a quarter of a million dollars. What the fuck? Where's my yeehaw now? In 1970, he was arrested for stealing 6,200 stamps from his employer, Mobile Oil Corp. He was able to cut a deal and had the charges dropped to misdemeanor in exchange for paying restitution. Somehow this was not a severe enough violation of his probation to send John to jail where he belonged. Isn't the point of probation and suspended sentences is like, yo, 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 if you just commit a... How? I don't understand how you can go to court for stealing a quarter of a million dollars and then by some f***ing miracle, they're like, you don't have to go to prison for many years. You'll be like, oh my God, lawyer, I'm going to give you a lot of that stolen, stolen money. And then you're like, and then the lawyer says, all you have to do all you have to do is not commit any crimes for the next three years i personally recommend just staying home because otherwise you have to go to prison and immediately he gets another job and he starts stealing f***ing stamps how much are stamps like 30p i don't know it's, that, it's been a long time since i bought stamps but when i was a kid they were like 30p or 24p or something let's say they're like a dollar being generous so he stole six thousand two hundred dollars worth of stamps risking going to prison for what was it three years probation dude are you smoking crack? he could well be smoking crack oh this is maybe a little bit before crack how this guy is like the luckiest guy later that year john took a job with the rb jones company selling insurance he seems to be able to talk people into anything so this was finally a job he was suited for unfortunately the job was in chicago so when he and his family moved there without telling his probation officer he was now in violation of his probation again i get the feeling that he's just totally gonna get away with this 
somehow. The job went quite well for John, though. As a natural grifter, I can't think of a better legitimate occupation for him than an insurance salesman. You f***ing insurance salesman. I feel like there's there's more legitimate insurance for sale today. Like, in the UK, if you're buying insurance, I feel like it's very heavily regulated. I tried to buy life insurance here in, in Prague, where I live. And the financial sector's just, it's not properly regulated like it is in the UK. Like, and... It just felt super sketchy. And I'm like, the person who's like, uh, the insurance set, not salesman, but like the person who you talk to, they're like, well, you can go for this company and I'd recommend this company. And I'm like, you're getting, and I, you're getting kickbacks from these places, right? Like for signing me up to this stuff. And it was also just super expensive and super sketchy. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And then we have ads for a company. I'm not sure if, they're spon- if they sponsored this episode, that'd be amazing, but it's called Policy Genius. And I'm like, and it's only available to Americans. Of course, of course it is. And I'm like looking at it. I'm like, wait, this is exactly what I want. And I just, and I just can't have it. And it, here it's a joke. So I just live without. I just live dangerously. I mean, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon. But it would be pretty intense on my family if I just like popped off because. I'm the major breadwinner. <laughs> However, he was ordered to move back to Missouri where he had violated his probation. As punishment for his sins, his probation period was extended. Which, uh, I'm just gonna guess, doesn't really affect him in any way whatsoever. Because he just seems to be ultra slippery. He was now, it was now 1971, and this move may have suited John and his family just fine anyway. His wife was about to give birth to fraternal twins, their third and fourth children, so it was time to move into a bigger house. Ah, yes, the 1970s, when an uneducated convict who couldn't hold down a job could not only afford a house, but to upgrade to a bigger house. Meanwhile, my generation is lucky if we can make rent. Yeah, it's crazy. How I don't know, like, the US, but I know here, and I know the UK, and it is crazy i feel the u.s is different because i don't think it's quite as bad i was reading some online article and they're like your house should be like twice your salary and i'm like (laughs) for a regular like a 25 year old in the uk earning what i don't know like let's say 30k a year i don't know if that's reasonable or not anymore 35 i think the average salary is like around like 20 late 20s early 30s so let's just say 35 you, there's, there's no house you can buy for seventy thousand pounds like anywhere even in like some hole town far out like it, uh, the north is generally cheaper somewhere up there 70 grand's not gonna buy you anything maybe like a flat in like the arse end of the country maybe maybe i'm out of touch but i feel like that's insane like it, but it's insane and and i don't know like the south where i come from it's like 200 grand for a small regular person's house i think i could be well out of touch to be honest but not just because i don't live there oh and yeah our parents just buying houses for like 40 grand or whatever <laughs> it's like okay speaking of being unable to hold down a job john was unemployed again thanks to his inability to resist embezzling from his employers but again he's never punished so why wouldn't he he just has to give the money back if he gets caught and you can bet he's probably embezzled a lot more than he's got caught for there was a simple solution to that. John would just have to be his own boss. Well, that's not a solution. If you're your own boss, it's like, I can't embezzle from myself. Like, can I? I guess you can. I don't know. Can you embezzle from your own company? I mean, it's your money. No, I, well, I, look, I don't know. Not accountant. Let's just move on. Uh, in 1971, John started his own medical consulting business called Professional Services Association, Inc. I haven't seen a name that generic since I went to the video store in 1989 and rented the dumpster fire of a game that was Mystery Quest for the original Nintendo. John's company was supposed to provide financial consulting to doctors in the Kansas City area, but it was more of just the same. He was hired by the University of Kansas Medical Center as a consultant for its family practice department, but he was quickly let go. Apparently, it it is extremely suspicious for a financial consultant to ask for the corporation's checkbook, not the balance sheet or the general ledger, the actual checkbook. How is this dude not in jail? Wait, 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 wait. The guy who's basically been, who has been convicted of embezzlement is now a financial consultant. What is going on in today's episode? I know we haven't really got into any crime, I mean, like proper crimes. Um, proper crime, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, embezzling money from people is a proper crime. But uh, like murders and But this is just blowing my mind with how this guy's not getting punished. He goes on to murder because he's like, well, no one ever seems to punish me. 
He wasn't in jail, but in 1975, he was certainly in trouble again after being caught trying to forge signatures and letters to claim thousands of dollars via a stock scam. A federal grand jury in Missouri indicted John Robinson on four counts of securities fraud, mail fraud, and false representation. Perhaps it was time for this lovable... That is, those are... Those are federal charges federal grand jury that sounds important and i know those federal crimes are more serious right so and securities fraud mail fraud false representation i don't know i was reading about that elizabeth holmes trial and she was guilty of like some of this fraud like maybe even these ones i feel like mail fraud and securities fraud are even on there allegedly and it's like she can go to prison for like 100 years or something (laughs) but i get the feeling that this guy's probably going to go to prison for like six months or maybe not at all. Perhaps it was time for this lovable scam to finally get his comeuppance. Except not really, because John was able to avoid all of that by pleading no contest to interstate securities fraud, which is still a serious crime, so naturally he received a $2,500 fine and three more years probation. Jesus, this guy must have a horseshoe up his ass or something. Speaking of which, John Robinson, Man of the Year. When John moved into his new house, he also became a scoutmaster, coach T-ball, re- refereed school volleyball games, taught Sunday school at a local Presbyterian church, despite clearly being Catholic as evidenced by his wife's uterus firing out babies like a machine gun, and of course, he bought two horses. This section's top title of Man of the Year was not a sarcastic editorial comment related to what an ex-active and seemingly upstanding member of the community he was. This is not that is not a title that I, a singular writer, could bestow upon a person. There are many organizations that hand out an award for Person of the Year, and much like Time magazine selections, only the most outstanding people of impeccable character can claim this award. Such as a multiple ex-convict. Also, the Time magazine one isn't about like outstanding people, it's just about notable people, because f- Hitler won it. And I think at that point they were like, it's not because we like him, it's just because he clearly was involved... They, they even had a quote like no man has will has affected the future of the world this year like adolf hitler so i mean man of the but i get the feeling this man of the year is like a good good award that he got such as adolf hitler yes two-time winner joseph stalin ayatollah Khomeini, and rudy giuliani oh no all of these i mean <laughs> just lumping rudy giuliani in there rudy giuliani really won man of the year what the I guess you really can tell a man by the company that he keeps. In 1977, John charmed his way onto the board of directors of a local handicap service organization. Common criminal or not, his silver tongue was able to talk itself out of jail and into the pants of dozens of women, so it's no surprise that he was able to talk his way into this position. His first official act, once appointed to the board, was to order official stationery for the group. This stationery was a very practical decision that the board should have made years earlier, and... Oh no, wait a minute, he's just using it to forge more documents. Stop it, John. He forged a letter from the executive director of the board to the mayor, and letters from the mayor, presumably also on the board, to other civil leaders. <laughs> he, invited, he invited them to awards luncheon to honor a, an anonymous man of the year. John even tricked a state senator into presenting him with the plaque. Why are you doing this? <laughs> What's the outcome? Just say so you have a fake man of the year award? This is like the fake, uh... Um, Prince Andrew and his fake admiral. I mean, they're not fake, they're real. But it's like, pointless when you didn't earn it. The men whose names he had forged read about the event in the paper the following day and were quick to set the record straight. Still, John was able to create a Man of the Year award and have it given to himself by a state senator, further inflating his entirely undeserved self, self, uh, state of self-importance. Meanwhile, back at home, it's reported that he was beating his wife and starving his dog and two horses. Don't let the wacky hijinks fool you. This guy is still human garbage. Yeah, this isn't one of these things where it's like, oh, he's just a lovable rogue. It's like, no, he's basically just a fraudulent thief. And also, uh, a piece of shit. He's like, uh, catch me if you can, if the guy wasn't likable and actually ended up being a total murdering douchebag. Somehow, John Robinson managed to stay out of trouble for the next couple of years. Yeah. But he was, you know, he just got better at his crimes. During that couple of years, I mean, allegedly, he's just like, he's definitely continuing to do what he did. He's just doing it better. He's learned, okay, well, I got caught doing that, so let's not do that and make it a little bit more clever. He's just padding his bank account some other way, for sure, allegedly. So in March of 1979, at age 36, he was released from federal probation with an excellent report from his probation officer. How the report could be so excellent when it took 10 years and multiple arrests for him to serve his three-year probation is curious at best. Again, this guy is going to be mega, mega charming. Like, piece of total psycho. But uh, he's going he's gonna to be very charming. 
He landed a job at Guy's Food, somehow only the second least creative company name in the script so far, as an employee relations manager. I think we have an abundance of precedent at this point, so how do you think this is going to go, Simon? Uh, uh, fraud, theft, embezzlement. If you guess stealing money and banging employees, oh yeah, I missed the second bit, of course. Then, bully for you, John started an affair with a secretary who helped him embezzle thousands of dollars by creating fake employee accounts and cashing their paychecks. For the first time in his life, crime didn't pay. He was found out and fired in December the following year, and he was charged with felony theft, summoning false vouchers, and forging debt checks. He pled guilty to a federal count of stealing a $6,000 check and was forced to pay $41,000 in restitution, as well as spending 60 days in jail. Ah! He's got a crazy criminal record at this point, and he just keeps doing it. I just don't know how you, how whoever's this guy lawyer guy's lawyer is. I hope he's like an absolute legend in the lawyer world. I mean, shit. that guy's like some Denny Crane shit right there. That forty-one thousand dollar fine was a lot of money, more than he had stolen, and John needed money. So once he was released from his sixty-day jail sentence in the summer of nineteen eighty-two, it was time to do what he did best: con people. <laughs> it's like, why are you conning people? Well, I gotta pay back the courts from my last con. <laughs> Except this time, things were getting a little darker. He created a fake hydroponics company, Hydrogrow, and tricked a friend into investing twenty-five thousand dollars, promising a quick return on investment, so that his friend could pay for his dying wife's health care oh my god i mean so far we know you're a dick, but now man now you're becoming like now you're entering psycho territory where it's like you have no emotions for someone to be able to do that is like you just don't feel things that regular ass people feel my dude around this time john also created a new consulting company called equiplus as best as i can tell he was trying to do what he was trying to do was consult his way into women's pants as he sexually propositioned many of his neighbors' wives, also known as his neighbors, because wives are not property. Thank you very much, 1980s news reporting. <laughs> 1980s. This was the 1980s. It's not even that long ago. This resulted in at least one physical fight with a neighbor's husband, though nothing really came of that. That fall, a man named Irv Blattner joined John Robinson as his partner in crime, and they started a sister company together called Equit 2. If John had paid more attention to the rules of casual criminalists, he would have known not to involve other people in his crimes. Yes. As far as I can tell, Blattner contributed very little. Then again, he was an ex-con, so maybe it was just nice having someone else that John assumed knew how to keep his mouth shut. In May of 1984, Blattner led John to a woman who was seeking a divorce. John posed as attorney and promised to get her a divorce in exchange for $200 in a car. A pretty standard retainer for a lawyer, really, and she never got her divorce. It's like, what are you doing? What's the retainer? I'll take your Toyota. <laughs> okay. I hope both you, Simon, and you, the listener, have enjoyed this episode so far. I've tried to keep things as lighthearted as possible when while discussing the early criminal career of John Robinson, but I fear there may not be many laughs ahead. After all, you morbid vultures did tune in to listen to the story of a serial killer, so from here on out, there is only torture, murder, and demonetization. Oh, Kevin, don't worry. <laughs> We've already got well into demonetization. Um, yes, brilliant. I have to say, I very much did enjoy this lighthearted segment. <laughs> kind of amusing pre-internet murders after founding his two shower companies john was going to need some employees to help make it look legitimate he had 19 year old paula godfrey to work as a sales representative for these companies shortly after being hired john decided to send her away for training he picked her up from her parents house to take her to the airport and she was never seen again Godfrey's parents eventually filed a missing persons report. The police interviewed John, but he denied any knowledge of her whereabouts. Several days later, her family received a typewritten letter thanking John for his help, telling them that she was okay, and stating that she did not want to see her family. Once this letter arrived, the investigation was terminated. <laughs> really, police? Really? I know you're going to want to jump on the police for this one, Simon. <laughs> pressing interview there kev but there was no evidence of foul play the letter had her signature and she was legally an adult there really wasn't anything left that they could do perhaps if john hadn't weaseled his way out of all his fraud convictions his 20-year history of forging documents would have been known to law enforcement and they would have found the letter incriminating rather than exculpatory yeah also just because he he was found guilty though he, or he made pleas or whatever it's just he didn't go to prison i mean he went to prison for like two months what 
This was a failure of the justice system, not of law enforcement. Still, it was a failure, and Paula Godfrey was never seen or heard from again, and her body was never found. I'm not sure I agree with you. I, I think, yes, obviously, the justice system failed for all of the previous stuff. Uh, but also, I don't know, although also you can't really blame the police. They've got a lot of stuff to do. And it just seems, is that enough? Won't the parents be like, why would she send us a letter? Why can't we reach her? She's, uh, okay, okay, forgiven. Something else that was unknown to law enforcement was that John had recently... No, also, they could have looked at his previous convictions. This is not a failure of the justices. This is a failure of the police, Kev. Something else that was unknown to law enforcement was that John had recently become a leading member of a local cult of sorts, a secret BDSM sex club known as the International Council of Masters, not to be confused with the International Masters Council, a training and support group for professional owners of martial arts schools. Yeah, to... Uh, Two rather different things there. John was the cult's slave master, and oh, this is his online username. And it was his job to bring victims to meetings for beatings, torture, and holy sh**. Jen, feel free to either bleep that unfortunate R-word or just throw in the South Park and it's gone meme for Simon's poor AdSense dealer's choice. Ah, uh, yeah, that is one of those words that gets you demonetized, but I don't know. I don't... It's... We, it's a true crime show. I just, I don't know why I didn't expect it to get demonetized all the time. <laughs> Good lord. I can't say for certain that this despicable cult of psychopaths, eager fun-loving practitioners of BDSM that, that have a respect for people's safe words and boundaries, a bad name, are the ones that are responsible for the murder and disposal of Godfrey, but it certainly seems likely. Okay. Oh, okay, so he has to bring them victims? That's messed up. I mean, yeah, isn't this the thing with that? It's like, okay, so he brings them the victims for all of these crimes, but they're not... Ri Unless I'm... Ri well, I don't know about this community, but my understanding would be that it's... Even though they're getting beaten... Wait, is a consensual beating still allowed in this sort of situation? Because, I mean, there are people who like this. It's part of that BDSM culture, so... That's legally confusing. I almost want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe it was an accident, a consensual act gone wrong, but if that were the case, there would have been no need for John to make the show of taking her to the airport beforehand. It seems that it was planned from the very start that she would not be returning. She is believed to be John's victim, certainly not his last. Not only did John now have a taste for blood, but his business pursuits were becoming more flagrant in their illegality as well. More flagrant? <laughs> Dude, <laughs> like super. You stole like a quarter of a million dollars you took all of their money <laughs> that's if that's not flagrant what is in summer of 1984 he used equitu to rent a duplex which he turned into a brothel he hired linda stevens jones to run it as well as find other girls to work there unsurprisingly the brothel specialized in rough bdsm but at his core john was still a family man excluding his wife and when his brother came with to him with a problem john was happy to oblige john robinson and don robinson and his wife helen had been unable to conceive their own child or adopt one. Ever the liar, John happily informs them that he had connections in the adoption business and would gladly help them out. He contacted social services to try and be put in touch with a single pregnant woman, presumably leaving off the part where he was looking into black market adoptions. When social services failed to give any leads, he went straight to the source. In January of 1985, John went to a battered woman's shelter under the name Josh Osborne and met Lisa Stacy, a 19-year-old single mother of a four-month-old baby, Tiffany. He convinced her that he would take her to a training program in Texas that included daycare and job training. On January the 9th, he went to the home of Lisa's sister to pick up Lisa and Tiffany, then put them up in a local hotel. While there, he asked Lisa to sign blank stationery. Oh, that is a warning sign. The next day, Lisa's mother, Betty, received a gut-wrenching phone call from a terrifying-sounding Lisa. Lisa said that they had deemed her an unfit mother and that Betty herself had requested custody of the baby. Betty told her this wasn't true, and the last words she heard her daughter say were, Here they come, before the phone disconnected. Lisa was never seen or heard from again. Two days later, John handed Tiffany a pile of seemingly authentic adoption papers, claiming the mother committed suicide, and he received $5,500 in lawyer's fees for setting up the adoption. Betty received a typewritten letter like the one Godfrey's mother had received, with Lisa's signature on the bottom. The same day, Betty filed a missing persons report. John was investigated on suspicion of violating the Mann Act, also known as the White Slave Traffic Act. 
a nickname we can't really get into right now but jesus christ america his probation was reevaluated, but once again the police had to drop the charges due to a lack of evidence slow down simon i know this is the second time that literally the same thing happened around this guy and now there's a baby involved too but there's no need to go dunking on these cops just yet they knew they had to drop the investigation because they couldn't find any evidence but thanks to carl sagan's recent miniseries cosmos they also knew that the absence of evidence was not absent evidence of absence that and the alleged crime may have involved crossing state lines it was time to bring in the feds good let's hope they know what they're doing also um i i I wasn't really ready to jump down the cops throats on that one because they looked into the evidence there wasn't enough evidence in the first one it seemed a bit more like maybe we could just look a little bit more just maybe a little bit of evidence we could at least look for but if they don't find any evidence they don't find any evidence what you want them to do make it up but no they bring in the feds remember that guy earlier who shouldn't have been part of the story because john should know better than to include other people in his crimes irv blattner recognizing how dangerous john was had now turned state's witness and was cooperating with the secret service uh-oh <laughs> this is exactly it like uh, you don't involve other people in your crimes that's right the secret service isn't just protecting the lives of top government officials they also have jurisdiction over financial crimes indeed that's what they do first isn't there that crazy story that lincoln established the secret service on the fir- on the day that he was assassinated that's true right uh but it was like the secret service to deal with counterfeit dollars or something not the secret service to be bodyguards but it's still a cool fact it's also weird that they do like financial crimes like forgery and or like uh counterfeiting and also presidential protection <laughs> it'd be like i'll protect you mr president i can also tell you if any of those bills in your wallet are forgeries that's what we do at the secret service uh, on March the 19th, 1985, Blattner signed a statement implicating John in a number of illegal activities to get him arrested for parole violations. Two days later, John was arrested at his probation officer's office. He must have been able to make bail because he did not just sit in a cell awaiting trial. But he also wasn't alone. The FBI sent an undercover female agent to pose as a potential prostitute at John's brothel, but she came, but she became so fearful for her life that this endeavor didn't last long. Wait, is it? is a brothel even in itself even if it's not like a murder brothel is that legal i don't think that's legal especially isn't this like the super you know yee conservative part of the country in april john met a woman named Teresa uh, williams who moved into the brothel to serve as his personal sex worker but also handle other clients oh my he also planned to use Teresa to help him frame blattner for her murder whoa <laughs> okay which they were going to fake at least she believed they were going to fake it after she displeased a client john threatened teresa by sticking the loaded barrel of a revolver into her vagina she pleaded for her life and john removed the gun from her body placed it back in his holster and left to go to his son's soccer game oh my god this has turned from i was i enjoyed the first half of today's episode and now it's like ah. Uh... <laughs> why couldn't he have just stayed a financial criminal why fortunately for Therese, the fbi was still watching not closely enough to see this happen and intervene but closely enough that when she escaped the situation alive they were able to move her to a safe house in july john hired a private investigator to find Therese, so the fbi moved her to another city for her safety and therein lies the keys to the falling apart of the united states justice system on august the 21st john's probation was revoked and he was sentenced to seven years in prison seven years that he would not serve aside from the signed letter from blattner the evidence against john primarily came from the accounts of Teresa williams the only issue with with that is that she was far away in protective custody isn't the point of protective custody so that you protect the witnesses before they stand trial and put someone like this monster away what is going to happen john was able to have the case overturned on appeal because he wasn't able to face his accuser what the fuck? just have a come back just be like yo you're in our safe house you're being protected on like the fbi's you're being protected on, like the fbi's dime you come back here and you testify that's part of the deal what F- you james madison and your stupid bill of rights yeah but he can face his accuser i assume that the bill of rights says you can't you have to be able to face your accuser or something like that if she should come back what the f- <laughs> this makes no sense instead of prison john wounds up on be- being on the cover of a national trade magazine called farm journal with an article encouraging people to invest in equi the editors were unaware both of his criminal record and the fact that the company they were promoting didn't seem to do much besides run a brothel two ranchers read the article and lost ten thousand dollars each after investing in the company how would you allow that to happen farm journal did this guy just con you so hard and then your journalists journalists 
did absolutely no follow-up or checking? What's going on? Having evaded justice yet again, it was time for John to get up to his old tricks. In 1987, Catherine Clampett, a 27-year-old single mother from Texas, moved to Kansas City to try and find employment, leaving her child with her parents in Texas. She met John, who offered her a job with extensive travel as well as a new wardrobe. She vanished that spring and was officially reported missing on June the 15th of that year, but she was never seen again. Her case remains open to this day. I can imagine what happened to her. I think we know. But finally, after decades of crime, justice was finally going to catch up with John, not for all the murders, but for the other stuff. In 1987, he began serving a four-year sentence in Kansas for several fraud charges. After his sentence, he was transferred to prison in Missouri to serve two more years for violating probation and an old fraud charge. During this time, the family lost the house and his wife and children moved to a trailer park in Alath, Kansas. His wife took the job of manager of the trailer park to support the family while John was in jail. What are you still doing with him? Like... I don't, you know, don't victim blame, but it's like, wow, you know, he's he's a criminal. You don't know he's a murderer, but he's a philanderer. What's up? And now he's in jail, and you're like, I'll stand by you, even though you're a complete douchebag. Um, but he's obviously very skilled at manipulation. Um, why, why is this stuff coming back to him now? Shouldn't he be in prison for like the murder? I thought he got away with the other stuff. Internet slave master. While in prison in Missouri, John became friends with and ultimately seduced the 49-year-old prison librarian Beverly Bonner. When he was finally released from prison in 1993, Bonner divorced her husband and moved to Aloth. She told her family that she had a job working for John's company and that it involved a lot of foreign travel. Uh-oh. After John arranged for Bonner's alimony checks to be mailed to a post office box, she was never heard from again, and all her belongings were placed in a storage unit. John continued to cash her alimony checks for years, and when Bonner's ex-husband questioned John about it, he said, that she had moved to Australia. Okay. Now out of prison with a stable source of income, John had plenty of free time to discover the internet. It was a good thing for him too. He clearly had the ability to charm people, and in his younger days, he was a pretty good-looking guy. Yeah, we know he, it hasn't been mentioned so far, but we know he's good-looking, right? Because he's like, oh, he's super charming. He's like, he's good-looking. He's seducing all the ladies. He was now 50 years old, though overweight, and a series of strokes in prison had left half of his face partially paralyzed. His charm could still work online, though, and in 1994, long before the ubiquity of digital cameras or the invention of smartphones, his looks were not going to be important. He immediately started using the handle Slave Master and looking for extremely submissive women that were into BDSM. It didn't take him long to find a victim. John met Sheila Faith, a 45-year-old woman from Colorado, while portraying himself as a wealthy businessman. He promised to give her a job, support her, and her 15-year-old daughter, Debbie, who was in a wheelchair due to spina bifida, and he would also pay for therapy for Debbie. They moved to Kansas, and once their mail was being forwarded to John's P.O. box, they promptly vanished. When he was living in Missouri, John Robinson was considered a family man and pillar of the community. In the Kansas trailer park, he was known as a dirty old man. He made sexual advances on many of his female neighbors and would creep by their trailers in a golf cart when he knew their husbands weren't home. The obvious solution wasn't to stop being a f***ing creep, it was to move. The alimony and disability checks he was cashing every month from his victims were more than enough for him and his family to move to a much nicer trailer park still in Alath, Kansas. There, he spent much of his time on line on his five computers, searching BDSM websites and hanging out in various BDSM chat rooms. Late in 1997, John met a 21-year-old Polish immigrant and freshman at Purdue University named Isabella Levitska. She told her parents, who were both college professors, that she was dropping out of school to take an internship she had been offered by a rich entrepreneur. I'm sure her parents couldn't have been happier. What's I don't know, like getting a job? Great. Dropping out of college? Not so great. Especially when, I guess, you traveled halfway around the world to go to college. What she did not tell her parents was that she was also signing a 115-item slave contract that gave John control over every aspect of her life, including her bank accounts. John, still married to Nancy, bought Isabella an engagement ring and took her to the county registrar, where they paid for a marriage license. John never picked up the license, but Isabella then registered for community college under the name Isabella Lewitsky robinson She told her parents that she was married, so it stands to reason that she believed John was, in fact, her husband. During, I think they got married, right? I mean, I guess he, his marriage isn't valid because he was legally married previously, but or at the same time, sorry. During her time in Kansas, she never returned home and only communicated with her family via email. Uh-oh. In the summer of 1999, Isabella told her friends that she and her husband were going away on an extended trip, and she was never seen 
or heard from again. John told an employee of his that she had been deported after being caught smoking marijuana. Her parents would continue to get emails allegedly from Isabella until the time Robinson was finally arrested. That September, though, he purchased a 16-acre farm in La Singe, Kansas. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing these Kansas places correctly. I'm sorry. I'm just guessing. <laughs> John would meet his final known murder victim shortly thereafter. Suzette Troughton, a 27-year-old nurse from Michigan, was promised $60,000 a year as a caring job for John's diabetic, wheelchair-bound, and fictitious father. The three of them were going to travel the world together, with Suzette acting as John's submissive sex slave. In February 2000, Suzette moved to Kansas City to work for him, but not before leaving his name and phone number with her mother, Carolyn. Carolyn began receiving typed letters that were allegedly from her daughter. She was immediately suspicious because her daughter never typed. The letters were uncharacteristically free of mistakes. She would later testify that her daughter was a horrible speller, and most notably, all of the letters were postmarked from Kansas City. On the 1st of March, after the letters had been dropped off, Carolyn called the number that Suzette had left with her. She was surprised when John answered the phone, as they were allegedly off traveling the world together. He claimed that Suzette had stolen money from him and ran off with an acquaintance of hers. Carolyn immediately smelled bullshit and contacted the police to file a missing persons report. Remember all those other missing people that John Robinson was connected with that were all mysteriously similar? Yes. Beveridge Farm remembers, and so did the police. If you lost count, that is eight victims so far that we know of jesus christ is it i can't if wow uh if you pay close attention to the dates you'll notice that there are some gaps of time that we can't account for and some of the known murders were extremely close together because of this we can't discount the fact that there may have been many many more victims who were never identified yeah this is what i said before like with the financial stuff it was just like oh he went through a period of not doing it for two years no 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 he went through a period of not getting caught for two years because he got better at it and a he didn't get caught for all of his murders, did he? The Arrest I have some bad news for you, Simon. The murders are done, but the depravity is not. While John was getting more arrogant and careless, there was still a lack of hard evidence for, uh, of his crimes against women. Fortunately, there was enough circumstantial evidence for a judge to grant the police a wiretap to get the proof that they needed. In the spring of 2000, John wired money to a recently unemployed psychologist from Texas named Vicky for her to come and visit. He arranged a meeting with her over Easter at a motel, and the police were waiting in the next room listening in. While Vicky had signed up for some rough sex, what happened was significantly rougher than what she had agreed to or wanted. John forced John forced her into acts that she didn't want to perform, tied her up and took pictures against her explicit instructions, and hit her much, ha much harder than she'd agreed to. All of these acts constituted sexual assault. <laughs> no sh**. He left her alone in the room for days and then came back and we're drifting into kidnapping, which is uh, ooh, sexual assault or kidnapping a more serious crime. I'm not sure, but let's combine them together and get those sentences served concurrently, uh, consecutively, it's consecutively, like one after the other, and that's going to be some good jail time right there. Wait, and aren't the police in the next room? How are you letting this happen? What the? F is that did i read that right what are you doing police you can't let this happen that's insane he left her a room in the alone in the room for days and then came back and told her to go back to texas but not before taking the hundreds of dollars of sex toys and bdsm paraphernalia that she brought with her he then reported the process he then repeated the process with gianna an unemployed accountant also from texas whom he promised a job after she was abandoned in the motel she called the police out of fear to file sexual battery charges Am I missing something, or did we say that the police were in the next room during this whole thing? What's going on? Why John was not arrested after the first of these encounters is unclear, perhaps because they needed the victim to file the complaint. They had listened in and heard evidence of sexual assault. But without the victim's testimony, I suppose it stands to reason they couldn't prove for sure that this wasn't part of a roleplay, especially since it was clear that Vicky had been on board for at least some of the amount of violence against her person. At this point, there was a 30-man task force. How are you not going in there and stopping this when she's held there for days? What are you doing? And they definitely were not letting him get away on a technicality. Even with Gianna filing charges, this could still have proven to be another failing of the justice system and that stupid due process that we hold so dear, but Vicky came forward as well. John had made a lot of mistakes in his life, I dare say his entire life was a mistake, and the world would have been better had he never had the opportunity to live it. But from John's perspective, his biggest mistake of all was not letting Vicky take her sex toys home. Sexual assault is a serious crime, and getting an arrest warrant was not going to be a problem. But because he had stolen hundreds of dollars of property from Vicky, the police at long last had probable cause for a search warrant, a warrant for his home, his desolate 16-acre ranch, 
and his storage unit in Missouri. Uh-oh. Well, good. They're finding something that they can go get a search warrant for, and they can use that search warrant to undercover what they really know he's guilty of. I'm still amazed they just sit in their next room while that shit's going down. While she's held there for days. I don't understand. On June the 2nd, 2000, police arrested John Robinson in his home, search warrant in tow. The search of his mobile home was uneventful, but at his ranch, with the help of his cada- with the help of cadaver dogs, they found the bodies of Suzanne Trotten and Isabella Lewitsky decomposing in 55-gallon chemical drums. At his storage facility in Missouri, police found more drums containing the bodies of Beverly Bonner and Sheila and Debbie Faith. All five women were killed in the same way, by one or more blows to the head with a blunt object. The bodies of Lisa Stasi and Paula Godfrey were never found, but enough evidence was found to link John to their murders, including a DNA test proving that the young girl his brother had supposedly adopted was Lisa's daughter. That's up. The Trial With the crimes taking place in two states, John was set to face trial twice, first in Kansas and then in Missouri. The preliminary hearing for his charges began on February 5, 2001. While the initial charges included three counts of murder, kidnapping, two fraud charges, and 54 fraudulent charges only, the judge pared it down to a lean seven felony counts, including the three murders. What followed was the longest criminal trial in Kansas history. When all was said and done, John was found guilty on all counts and was sentenced to life imprisonment for murder, as well as 20.5 years for kidnapping and an irrelevant seven months for theft. That that just left the small matter of the charges in Missouri. See, John had a strong difference of opinion with the state of Missouri. John wanted to continue living, and Missouri felt quite the opposite. John's lawyers wanted to avoid trial there at all costs, as Missouri is aggressive in its pursuit of capital punishment. Yeehaw! Missouri prosecutor Chris Costa insisted that a condition of any plea bargain would be for John to lead authorities to the bodies of Stacy Godfrey and Clampett. John had never cooperated with the authorities in any way or given up any information, so naturally he refused. Still, Costa was being pressured to make a deal. The case was not technically airtight, most notably because, with the bodies being found so close to the state line and the other murders happening in Kansas, they could not prove unequivocally that the murders actually took place within his jurisdiction. It was also reported that John was being pressured to take a guilty plea to avoid an almost certain death sentence in Missouri. Yeah, dude, you, uh, you're going away forever. <laughs> so take the plea deal in the other state to avoid the death penalty. You're not going to get away with it. If they put that on the table, you got to take it. When it became clear that the bodies would never be found without John's cooperation, they finally reached a disappointing compromise. Though a carefully, through a carefully worded statement, John acknowledged that Costa had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for Godfrey, Clampett, Bonner, and the Faiths. It was technically a guilty plea, and the court accepted it as such, but nothing in the wording acknowledged any responsibility or remorse for what had happened. John received five life sentences for each of the five murders. The astute listener may have noticed that I left a little something off earlier. In Missouri, I said that John received five life sentences for five murders, but in Kansas, where he was on trial for three murders, I only mentioned a single life sentence, and that's because he only received one life sentence for those murders. For the other two murders, he received two death sentences. Oh, okay, never mind. The only reason he did not receive three death sentences is because one of the murders for which he was convicted took place before Kansas reinstated the death penalty on April the 23rd, 1994. I do find it a crazy thing that the... Doesn't you know normally progress moves one way, and I feel like progress is away from the death penalty. It's interesting that places reinstate it. This brings us to the bad news, the good news, and the bad news. The bad news is that in his 2015 appeal, oh my god, these things go on forever. Uh, John was able to overturn two of the murder convictions on technicalities. The good news is that his conviction for the murder of Isabella Lewitska and its accompanying death penalty still stand. The other bad news is that while John Robinson currently sits as one of only nine men on death row in Kansas, the state has not executed a prisoner since 1965. Murderer, sadist, cartoonist and now for the lighter side of things. Early on in my research, I stumbled across these delightful little political comics drawn by none other than John Robinson himself. What? Noted they were drawn in 2014 before his appeal finally overturned two of the charges. See if you can spot the complete lack of remorse or self-awareness that John displays here. Okay, so the artwork on these is not actually bad. <laughs> if you're just listening to the show, they look like um, something that you'd see in a newspaper. I mean, maybe not quite. Okay, they're not that great. 
Um, but they're not bad. The first one is uh, for, for our dear listeners, Jen. I'm sure we'll put these up on the screen, although... I don't know. No, this is fair use. We're commenting on it. What's he going to do? He's in prison. <laughs> for murder. F*** that guy. 71 years old. Uh, there's a man sitting on a bed. Um, there's a mouse in the corner saying, Hey, I'm still your buddy. Got anything to eat? There's a calendar on the wall saying 2015. Okay. And then the man has a thought bubble. 71 years old. 11 years in this... Uh, 10 by 7 cell in solitary confinement. No human contact. Delay after delay of my appeal. I think that might justify a little depression. Um, I don't get it. Is there a joke in there? And then the next one, the second one is a there's an elephant which is dressed up as a Supreme Court judge and it's laughing and then it says the United States Constitution does not prohibit the execution of an innocent person as long as a judge has found he had a fair trial so much and then the little dog at the bottom says so much for equal uh, equal protection under the law well no they don't execute innocent people they've been found guilty by a court of law these are weird oh my god there's a third one uh there's what looks like some sort of weird cat and a mouse sitting at a table oh sorry it's a weasel it's labeled and they're both at computers and the weasel says i just found this website that teaches you how to write death to death row prisoners tell them you want to be their friends then sell the reply letter online uh and then the mouse says that's pretty disgusting even by my standards and there's a sign on the wall saying low life scams inc loathsome repulsive odious by choice okay <laughs> so don't reply to the letters <laughs> Yes, a man who was murdered. Yes, a man who murdered at minimum eight women, pled guilty to five of those murders, and was convicted after the bodies were found on his property, is definitely the victim in all of these. The irony of John feeling like he has somehow been the victim of scamming by someone else is insane to a level that I can't even describe. But not as insane as his assertion that he is somehow an innocent man. You pled guilty. <laughs> you clearly murdered people. You monster maybe the false promise of friendship is especially hurtful to him after his wife finally divorced him in 2005 about time citing irreconcilable differences wrap up john robinson is a disgusting individual who deserved to die um yeah okay i know i often make statements like that on this show but it's uh someone deserving to die is i don't know although there have been ones previously i was like pedro lopez man that guy deserves to die Okay, I'm going to let it go. Kevin, you could say that. <laughs> he went from being... I, I, generally, I'm like, people should be able to make their own decisions based on their own morals. But sometimes I'm like, no, 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 I am right. He went from being a promising youth to a mildly entertaining con man to the internet's first serial killer. We will never know how many people he has killed because he isn't talking to anyone except via cartoon animals that talk about unfairly he's being treated. Still, given the gaps of time in the information that we have... There are most certainly more barrels out there with more victims just waiting to be found. Personally, I think Missouri prosecutor Costa should have swung for the fences. With John already handed two death sentences and one life sentence by Kansas, it almost feels as if he had nothing to lose. You could try to argue he had nothing to gain either, but I think we can agree that this story would have a much happier ending if he had received a death sentence in the state that wasn't afraid to flip the switch. Yes, um, also he got away on the technicalities of two of them which I, they couldn't have predicted dismembered appendices one while capital punishment still exists in over half the united states holy shit, only 13 states have executed a criminal in the past 10, 10 years uh i'm gonna guess southern states midwestern states because i just found out the midwest kansas and all those guys they're also into it texas i want to say texas i think that's in the south but texas is going to be in there i want to say alabama florida uh, who else is down south? One of those Dakotas? Something like that? I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, here we go. South Dakota. Yes, Idaho. Oh, here we go. South Dakota. Got that one. Idaho, Nebraska, Arizona, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, and, of course, Texas. Not bad. Three out of ten. I mean, and, like, I guess the, the southern ones, but... You know these because when someone gets executed, it's like international news and you're like, oh, Texas. <laughs> Number two, the description of the International Council of Masters came from John Robinson himself. He also said the organization goes back to 1920 and has chapters throughout, the Euro- uh, throughout Europe and the U.S. 
The only problem with this account is that there are no references to this group anywhere outside of what John has said or created himself. Most likely, this group does not exist, and it was a story he concocted to give himself credibility, to give himself credibility and allure as a master that the submissive women would want to associate themselves with. Number three, have you ever wondered why junk email is called spam? Uh, I think I know the answer to this because I made a video about it, but I'm not going to spoil it. Would it surprise you that a bunch of internet nerds would name something after a Monty Python sketch? No, it would not. The sketch was about a restaurant in which every item can the canned product spam and it was repeated over and over again throughout the sketch it was ubiquitous unavoidable and repetitive the first recorded use of the term was on usenet in 1993 after a user accidentally posted the same message 200 times and in the joking that ensued the references to the monty python sketch were unavoidable if you'd like to know more about this check out the today i found out video which is another channel i host check that out uh all about spam fascinating this has been an episode of the casual crimis felt long i think i, I it felt extra long because my uh camera stopped recording at some point because my memory card was full and i had to go back and shoot a little bit but that's okay you didn't even notice it because obviously it's edited later by wonderful jen thank you to kevin for writing it thank you jen thank you dear viewer or listener for watching or listening if you'd like to utilize that like button you can if you'd like to leave a review where you get your podcasts that would be amazing and i'll see you next time